in every uh, recounting of a vacation, if you ever go on vacation, when you come back, there's usually an instance where the one who went on vacation tells you at least four things. Vacations cannot happen with, without food because part of that rest is enjoying food when you're on vacation. So the, what are those four things? There's usually four parts to the, the retelling of the events. There is the appetite. Obviously, you were hungry when you went on vacation. Then there's the desired food. So you go to another country and you say, oh, I was, we were here. Oh, did you go out to eat? Yes, because I was hungry. Where did you go? So that's the first part is the appetite. The second part is the desired food. The third, the third part is the satisfaction of that food. Did you enjoy it? Was it a bad restaurant? Was it a terrible restaurant? Was it in a house? Was it good? Was it bad? Was a waiter good? You ask all of these questions. And the fourth is the approval of that time. And so you, and, and the approval is in the state of that person. You say, man, that, was, that must have been a really good time. Really good time. Every story goes like that. You know, you go to a, uh, a new restaurant. This is one of the first questions that we asked when we moved here from Greenville. Any good restaurants? Any Dominican restaurants? And, and you really want to know, one, you're hungry. You're assuming that you're going to be hungry at some point. And number two, you're assuming that life happens around food. And so when we look at what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount, there are four parts to verse 6. There is the appetite of the believer, which is the hungering and thirsting. There is the desire, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You have the object of your desire, something which is called righteousness. You have the reward of the believer, which is you will be satisfied. And then there's the state, which is what he said at the very beginning. You will be blessed. And so those are the four things that I want to look at today um, as we go through this. And the two questions that I, I, I just want to ask is, what does it mean to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does that mean? The second question is, how will they be filled? And actually, it's three questions. And with what shall they be filled? And I think that these are the two main questions or three main questions that we should be asking as we approach this text. In this text, in the, as pastor calls, the being attitudes, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us all of these blessed are you's, blessed are you's, or blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And what he's doing for us is he's telling us the state of a person within the kingdom of God. To hunger is to desire something that will satisfy an innate appetite. In other words, the way in which the Lord has designed us in the human body is that we will look outside of ourselves in order to satisfy something within us. Every one of us is dependent on an outside source which must come to them. And one of the things that we're meant to see when we look at something like this is that we are not self-sufficient people. There is no way that you can go on in this life without ever eating. If you don't eat, there's something wrong. And we will bring you to the hospital. One of us will. But there is an inherent desire in all of humanity, in all of the living things, to seek out whatever is going to enable them to help them to live. Something needs to come in from the outside in order to sustain us. And the same thing is true for thirsting. Everyone knows what it is to be thirsty. The, the body sends out red flags and warning signs when you don't have enough 
water in your body or when you don't have enough food in your system. So everyone knows what it means to hunger and everyone knows what it means to thirst. And this verse is placed immediately after an account in Matthew's gospel where Jesus has just gone through the wilderness where he is tempted to turn stones into bread. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, it says, listen to the force of what Matthew is putting in front of us. In verse 1, he says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He didn't have to put that editorial note in there, but he does. And one of the reasons why I think Matthew puts this editorial note that he was hungry. I mean, you're, you're coming away from listening to this and you're like, okay, if he's fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, obviously he's going to be hungry. But why put it out there? And the reason why is because the entirety of all of Jesus's ministry is going to be one that feeds others rather than himself. And so the force of this testing shows to us the significance of Jesus's ministry and his character. He's telling us when he gets to the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He knows exactly what that is. He lives it. And so why is this significant to us? And I think that the question li- the, the, the answer to this question lies in the significance of Jesus' actions. He was in the wilderness. He was tested. He responded with Deuteronomy, which is what we read earlier, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 4. But he didn't complain. The children of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. And they complained against Moses. They said, we would rather have the pots of leeks and garlic that were back in Egypt rather than be here because you brought us out here and the Lord brought us out here to kill us and our children. Did Jesus ever complain? No. Food in this life can only help us in this life. However, the food that... Jesus goes after comes from the very mouth of God, and it is God's word, which is why he says that verse to the devil. And so Jesus uses his authority, and this is something that you have to see as as you're going through, especially Matthew, but even all of the Gospels. When you look at your Savior, when you look at our Savior, one of the things you have to understand is Jesus uses his authority as the Son of God not to serve himself. Mm but to serve others. He had every right. He tells, he tells the, the, the people who are questioning him when he is about to get crucified, he says, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels? But did he? No. The hungering that Jesus had is a hungering which is explicitly stated in John's gospel. Actually, John picks this up and he brings it out. So John chapter four, he's talking to a woman at the well This woman is out in the middle of the day when no no one else is out and he starts talking to her. And then afterwards, his disciples come and they see him. Who is this person talking? Who is Jesus talking to? And then they go up to him and and, and John records. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging or they continued to ask him, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus responds and says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And then here's a little inside turmoil that's happening within the within the, the disciples they're asking so has anyone brought him something to eat did someone go to the store did someone go to the corner store and get him something to eat 
And what does Jesus respond to them? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4, 31 through 34. The kind of hungering is we're looking at the appetite of the believer, of the man, of the woman. The, the, the kind of hungering and thirsting, this kind of hungering and thirsting is a longing to be satisfied only with the one who can actually satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Mm. And so before we get to any application for this appetite, what is Matthew actually doing? Again, we've asked that question, but let's put Matthew on the spot. Matthew, I want to ask you what you're doing. And this is what he's doing. He's telling us that our Savior is on a mountain teaching, just as Moses was on a mountain teaching. He's telling us that Jesus is talking to a multitude of people, just as Moses spoke to 6.2 million people being led out of Egypt. He's telling them that the only way to live, the, 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 the very means for their life, is the word of God. It's not the manna that's falling down from heaven. It is God's word, something that goes deeper than the physical. And so the assumption here is that the kind of people who are now hungering and thirsting are the kind of people who are alive. And there's a difference. You can look these people in the eye. You can say, are you hungering and thirsting? They can tell you, yes, I'm ready for lunch. But this is not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? There's something much more than this life. There's something more, as one singer in the 90s put it, there's something more to this life than just living and dying. And somehow everyone comes to this crisis right before they're about to face death. They all realize, I should have made more time. I should have done this. I should have been right with the Lord. I, I regret all of these things. And suddenly they're hungering and thirsting for something that goes beyond this life. The food and the water of this world is meant to be a means, a pointer to an even greater reality. So you have steak on the table, you have bread on the table. This is all meant to be a pointer, like the finger on your hand pointing to someone else. You're not supposed to be focusing on the finger. You're supposed to be focusing on the, where the finger is pointing to. And that is the one who can supply all of your needs. The Lord created the physical world and all things, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Mm. And so you look at the appetite. The appetite assumes that the person is alive. Jesus says, blessed are those who are, and if you want to be literal, none of the translations picked this up incidentally, but it should be, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The ING is important because... The ING tells us that this is something that's happening right now. This isn't, this isn't something that happened back then. This isn't something that happened last week on vacation. This is right now. Are you hungering and are you thirsting after the Lord? That's the real question. And Jesus says, the people who are blessed, who are currently in this state of affairs, are hungering and they are thirsting, which means this is an ongoing situation. But you look from, as we go from the appetite of the individual into the actual object of desire, what is that desire? Is it macaroons? Is it madeleines? Is it some pastry that you can only get in some country? Or what is he getting at? And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Now, it's hard to understand what the word righteousness means just by itself here. Because as Reformed people, we're always thinking of righteousness in terms of being right before God. But this is not what Jesus is getting at right now. Again, the fact that he says, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting, assumes that that righteousness that we are all tempted to think about has already happened. And because of that, now they're longing for an outflow, the fruit of that righteousness. So it's, in a sense, it's righteousness giving birth to righteousness. Mm-hmm. The righteous state that happened before the, the judgment seat of God gives way to a lifestyle of righteousness. And actually, you can look up and see in Psalm 23, verse 3, that he leads me in the path or the way of righteousness for his name's sake. This is not the judicial righteousness before God. This is a life pursuing all of God for all of God, because you enjoy, you love God for all that he is. You want to see him in every aspect of life so that when you're looking out on the highway, you're thinking about him. When you're cooking dinner, you're thinking about him. When you're going down the Jericho Turnpike, you're thinking about him. Every single thing that you're doing, whether it's cleaning toilets or putting up lights, you're thinking about the Lord and you want to do it in a way that's going to magnify God because you know that he's watching not just that he's watching with his arms folded, kind of like a, a, a removed father, but he is looking at you and he is in your presence and you are in his presence and there's an actual vibrant communion happening. Mm-hmm. Those who desire to see the full expression of the character of God in every area of their lives so that the righteousness is not just necessarily a judicial righteousness are those who are hungering and thirsting for this in their life. And what we see in verse 6 is made clear by his continued use of the word righteousness throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, blessed are you in verse 11 when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so uh, he says, rejoice and be glad for their reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, there's an assumption that there's a lifestyle here. But if you look also at verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Or chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And the idea behind this all is that the righteousness is not a courtroom setting. This is, you are, this is an outworking of what already happened. In today's culture of woke theology, Some may interpret this verse to mean that the righteousness means transform society. We want justice because the the word can either be translated as justice or righteousness. It's the same word. But justice doesn't fit because this is not what the Lord is getting at. This is not a moral transformation of society. This is not to correct the systemic racism that we think that we see in this world or that there is in this world, this is not what Jesus is getting at. He's not getting at transforming society. He's talking about an individual expression of how you live your life before the face of God. And so to, sorry to all of my, or not so sorry to those woke people who say that this is about justice. No, this is not about justice. 
This is about seeing the outworking of your love for the Lord in all of life. It is a righteousness that enables you to pause. If you could, if you could, you know, if you could take the remote of your life and just kind of pause everything so that there's a standstill to everything that happens. So that the only things that are moving in this scene are you, your thoughts, and the Lord. This is the kind of righteousness that asks these kinds of questions. Lord, what is it in my life that's blocking us? Lord, what will it take for me to grow in knowing you? Lord, what do I need to cut out of my life in order to draw nearer to you? Lord, how can I continue to please you even in the smallest of things? I'm not called to be a minister. I'm not called to be a deacon. I'm not called to be an officer in the church. I'm just called to be a person walking in the street. How can I continue to please you? Lord, is there anything in my life that is suppressing my hunger and thirst for you? Is it my schedule? Is it my neglecting time in your word? You pause everything in life and this is what hungering and thirsting after righteousness looks like. You are pausing everything and you're going to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, this is what matters the most. This is the righteousness that the Lord's people hunger after. Those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness are going from, like I've said, righteousness to righteousness. Why? They've been made righteous by God. You've been made righteous by the Lord. And for you to not have an appetite for the Lord we have to ask the question, are you taking appetite suppressants? Some of those appetite suppressants are years and years of habits that you have formed that have not regarded the Lord, but have prioritized you. And so these eventually become appetite suppressants. And thank God for his word, because then his word begins to pierce your soul and say, you are not the most important person in life because you are not self-sufficient. But I am. And that's what he says. This is why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Moses didn't feed you. It was my father who fed you. Mm. And so those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness are at the marketplace of this world. This always happens. You go out to this world and you look at the marketplace. And what does the marketplace provide for you? The marketplace provides you one of two things, either God's word or the indigestible food that can never pass through your soul. And it only makes you spiritually lethargic. And you can't do anything. You can't move an inch to pick up your Bible and you don't really care for it anymore because you've got so many other things to do. Mm. And that is what the marketplace of the world offers to you. Here's more Netflix. Here's more news that's coming out of the West or the East or the North or the South. Here's some other fascinating, shining object that you could devote your attention to. Don't worry about the Lord's word. Think about this. And then the marketplace of God's word, which is here on the Lord's day, the marketplace for the soul, which is meeting together with God's people, hearing from God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word, confessing God's word, looking each other in the eye and thanking the Lord for his word being working or working through all of us. 
And this is why David says, or the psalmist says, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Hebrews 12 tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Notice that weights are not sin, but weights can lead to sin. They can. What are some of those weights? I've already said it. You can do social media. It can be your job. It could be the prioritization of your own family over and above the Lord and his people. And sometimes what we see, I've I've, uh, lived in several places, and usually it's I have to take my kids to a baseball practice on the Lord's Day. So I don't have time to spend with you and, and, and all of God's people because I have to go and do this thing and I have to do this and take my son to soccer practice. And there's nothing against soccer practice and there's nothing against baseball. But the reality is those become weights which eventually lead to sin, which means that you have neglected the means of grace which God has given to supply your soul with life. And so we are told, lay aside every weight. And then there are sins. And he says, lay those aside which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not to the left or to the right, but looking to Jesus. And, you know, when you stand on a treadmill and you're running, you don't really care to look at everyone else. You just want to focus on one thing, because if you start looking everywhere else then you trip and you fall and then you look like a fool and everyone's looking at you. But when you're running a race, you want to look straight ahead and you want to focus on the object of what you're doing. It's the same thing with project management. It's the same thing with every area of life. And here, the writer to the Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so it is now to our Lord Jesus that we turn. So we go from this appetite, the hungering and the thirsting, which is an indicator that you are alive, Mm -hmm. now to the object of that hunger and thirst. It's not filet mignon per se, but it is the righteousness of God. And you go from there to looking at the Lord who chiefly embodied this beatitude because he's the only one that can reward you with the satisfaction that you need. When we look at these, as pastor says, being attitudes, some of the questions that we need to ask Matthew are, what are you telling us about Jesus? I was telling Mike the other day, we should go, every service that we should go to, we go to should have us walking away where we take more of Christ, we learn more of Christ. So what does this say about our Savior? And one of the questions that many people were probably asking Jesus back then is, how are, how, how, how are you going to satisfy my soul? How are you going to satisfy me? How are you going to do this? You're making all of these promises. How do you expect to fulfill all of these promises that you're making? Well, according to Psalm 17... This is the one who satisfies his people with children. And this is also the one who satisfies his people with his likeness. Mm. According to Psalm 145, which Jesus brought the disciples to see at the end of Luke. This is the one who opens his hand and fills his people with good things so that their desire is satisfied. This is the one whom the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And again, notice that there are only two times in the book of Matthew that we have recorded Jesus being hungry. 
The first time is at his temptation. The second time is going after the fig tree and he finds no fruit. And Matthew does not record him sitting down afterwards and saying, I didn't, I cursed this fig tree and therefore I went to the store. No. Where do we find Jesus actually eating? And the only time that we find him actually eating is with his disciples right before he's about to die. So what does he do? Well, in chapter 4, verse 17, immediately after his temptation to eat, he preaches. Then he appoints disciples in verses 18 through 22. Then he teaches and he heals every disease and demon and afflicted person in verses 23 through 25. Then in chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, he feeds 5,000 people. No record of him eating at, at all. Then after that, he talks about bread only to reward the faith of a Gentile woman. Then after that, in, in chapter 15, verses 29 through 20, uh, 31, he continues to heal, but he still doesn't eat. Then in chapter 15, verses 32 through 39, he is feeding the 4,000. And then in chapter 16, he teaches the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In chapter 21 is the first instance after his temptation that he's recorded as being hungry. Why would Matthew do that? It's because if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness and you're looking, let's say you're tracking with Jesus, you're watching his every move, you're that stalker. <laughs> you're watching everything that he's doing, every movement, you're studying him. And you're saying, man, this guy is hungering and thirsting, but he's not actually eating food. What mm -hmm. is he doing? Mm -hmm. Jesus' food is righteousness. And his righteousness is to serve others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so the priority of Jesus' hungering and thirsting was primarily to do the will of the Father, John chapter 4, and the satisfaction of all those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so how can we be so sure that those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness will be satisfied? Well, the basis of this satisfaction is found all the way at the end of the book. You have to read the whole thing. You have to look at it in the entirety of its context. If Jesus had not risen again then we'd all be stuck. We would all be stuck. And so the work of the Spirit is seen in the preceding verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have this deep acknowledgement of who you are before the holiness of God. And now... The Spirit produces this hungering and this thirsting. Now that you've acknowledged who you are before God, now you want more of Him. Now all you want to do is be like Isaiah and lift your hand and say, Here I am, Lord, send me. Well, I didn't tell you the mission yet. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going. Where am I going? To a people who are hardened of heart and they will not hear you. Okay. But the person who is hungering and thirsting after the Lord will not care about those things. Mm -hmm. Overshadowing his desires or her desires will be a desire to be in the very presence of the Lord. And so, where does this leave us? The, this beatitude assumes that life has happened already. That the person is alive. Yeah, that's right. 
This beatitude assumes that healthy life has taken place. So it's not just enough that you're alive. If you're alive and you don't desire any food, that's a problem. But this beatitude assumes that life already happened. The Spirit has done His work of regeneration so that now your eyes are opened and the first thing that you see, the first person that you see is the living Savior in His Word. And now you want Him. And this beatitude assumes that you have an appetite. So here comes the question because this is what all of God's Word should do to us. Where is your appetite? Mm. Take an inventory of your heart and ask, what am I hungering for now? What am I thirsting for now? There's a a cartoonist for The New Yorker named Asher Perlman. And uh, he does this cartoon where two people are sitting at a bar and one person says, excuse me, I hate to cut this conversation. It's so good, but I desperately need the approval of someone else. (laughs) And we ask the question, we laugh at that, but it's true. Are you hungering for the approval of other people? Are you hungering for the approval of the people in the church or the people in your family? And there are two spheres in which this beatitude occurs. There's the personal sphere. Are you personally hungering for your communion with God? Are you prioritizing the things of the Lord? Are you setting aside all of the things that are going to uh, inhibit your times with the Lord? And sadly, many Christians today don't know that they are spiritually starving and that they are spiritually dehydrated. They wonder why I can't go through life without grumbling or complaining. I wonder why. Because the answer is because you have not been eating. What does it mean to eat? I'm glad you asked. It means picking up your Bible. In other words... When we tell you, or when when a minister tells you, or when you ever hear your brothers and sisters telling you and exhorting you to read your Bible, to take up and read, this is not just so that you can get a theological fathead. This is so that your soul can be satisfied. And so we come to the Lord so that we don't, we're not dehydrated and we're not starved. And this is ultimately communion with God. But then there's a corporate sphere. So this is individual, is you and the Lord. You have to do business with God. Are you growing? Are you growing and knowing Him? Are you proactively seeking Him out in His Word? And then there's the corporate, the prioritizing of righteousness together with God's people, covenantally. This is why the Lord's Day is so important. Well, I, that person annoys me. This person doesn't talk about the things that I like to talk about, so I don't think I'm going to hang out with that person anymore. Wrong. Because the Lord could have said this to all of the people that he hung out with. Except he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. So here's the question. The Lord comes from glory. He sits down with sinners. And he can call everyone on the carpet for all of their sins. And in fact, many of the jokes are probably tasteless in his ears. But he still chooses to enjoy a company with people who had never stepped foot into eternity. And who are created creatures who never had the enjoyments that Jesus experienced before all creation. A person like that is at 1,000% odds with you. And yet he took his time to spend with his people. Do we have an appetite for the Lord? Or are there, like I've said, appetite suppressants? In many ways, some of you are like those who 
go to the basketball courts and you watch on the sidelines as the players play. Oh, I love those people who go to the Haven Church and I love that they get involved in all of these things. And you're hungering and thirsting for something more, but you don't want to you don't want to put yourself out there too much. You don't want to cross that boundary line of hesitation. But the Lord is on the court. And he says, come in. He points his finger at you. and He says, come into the game. Come into the game with me. And he says this in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. No barriers. You don't have money? Good. Come. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the opposite of what Jesus is proclaiming is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel will promise you everything now and you will be bankrupt in eternity. But what Jesus is promising is to satisfy you right now and for all of eternity. And so he says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The promise that the Lord gives here is that those who are truly hungry and thirsty for this righteousness is guaranteed based entirely on his person. This is why we come to Christ. This is why we sing, all I have is Christ. This is why we come to the Lord's table to partake of this communion with the living Christ. If you are hungry, if you are thirsty... Put everything away that will blockade you from coming to him. Mm. That means for some people who ask the question, can I work on Sundays? Is it going to prohibit you from coming to the Lord and his people? If yes, then stop it. Mm. In Revelation 22, verse 17, the closing chapter of the book of John, where the John writes of the Bible The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires to take the water of life come without price. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you and we pray that you would continue to whet our appetite, that our souls would be satisfied with you and weaned off of the cares of this world. We need less of this world and more of you. And we ask that you would do this for our sake, for Christ's sake especially. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.